and welcome to the latest Science to Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Pat Davidson. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Pat onto the show. Dr. Pat Davison, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, well, thank you very much. Looking forward to this interview. I am too. So, uh, should we crack on with it? Can you give us an introduction as to who you are and what you've done until now? Sure. Um, you know, as you introduced me, I'm, I'm Dr. Pat Davidson. And my background is that I have a PhD in exercise physiology. Uh, I worked as a professor for about six years at a couple different uh, higher ed institutions. You know, during that time, I competed in strongman and at the 175 pound weight class, I I finished uh, top 10 in the United States twice in that weight class, which qualified me to go to the world championships. And I competed at the world championships against international competition and finished top 10 once. So I've got a, a background in, in, um, in that sport for strength sport participation. And, you know, since then, I've done a lot in the way of presentations and books and things of that nature. Uh, the big project that I've finished up recently is what has kind of been called like the Rethinking the Big Patterns book. Uh, it's being sold on Renaissance Periodization. And the official title is A Coach's Guide for Optimizing Movement. Actually, fantastic. You've led me brilliantly into, into our first question there. So we're going to discuss uh, a few topics from that. Um, and firstly, then, why is movement quality so important? Well, you know, when I was, uh, when I was at Springfield College, uh, which was the second school that I worked at, I was coaching a team that was, uh, we called it Team Iron Sports. So we had a mixed collection of, uh, you know, strongman athletes, powerlifters, crossfitters, weightlifters, uh, and bodybuilders. And, you know, I, I, at that time, like, I, I hadn't really intended to work with that team. I, uh, I really, you know, I wanted to be a professor and teaching exercise science and also working with the teams on campus in general, football, baseball, uh, swimming, track and field, whatever. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I saw myself probably going professionally. But, you know, I kind of started with that group and, and, um, you know, I was also competing with them as well. But I, you know, I was just a big, I, I just really wanted to be as involved with modern strength and conditioning protocols and practices as I possibly could. And some of my earlier influences were, um, you know, it's, it's funny, I think back to my, the, the history of my influences in the sport. And I kind of started, I competed in mixed martial arts. And, and one of the guys that helped coach me was a uh, kettlebell competitor. Uh, and I kind of, another guy I trained with was into powerlifting. So I kind of, my first two influences were sort of like the early Dragon Door 
uh, kettlebell group, and then Westside Barbell. And then I, I ended up getting formally into education. And my first major professor was a woman who was a weightlifting competitor. And she really introduced me to, you know, high level proficient weightlifting. But she was also a very well-rounded strength and conditioning practitioner. Um, you know, Ellen Robinson at Bridgewater State University. Now she, um, you know, she was just technically highly proficient in everything that she did. She was extremely well educated from a theory perspective in terms of, you know, classical textbooks as well as, uh, Russian literature and, and everything else. But she was also very well versed in modern strength and conditioning practices such as, you know, Mike, Mike Boyle's training system and, and others. So she was a tremendous early influence on me. Um, and, and really kind of through that time period, I just started to explore, you know, I was close enough to Mike Boyle's place where I got to meet him and I got to meet other people that worked there and got very familiar with his, his, uh, methodology. And, you know, that kind of introduced me to great cook stuff and that kind of introduced me to the world of, uh, you know, the Czech practitioners, Yonda at all. Uh, and that got me into DNS and then DNS got me into PRI and, you know, I just sort of kept going into those realms of, and at the same time trying to compete in strongman and coach, uh, mostly strongman athletes, but a host of other, uh, iron sports based competitors. And, you know, I, I can even remember, I, you know, I've just read a lot of things like, that. you know, I've, I've been a, a voracious reader really my entire adult life. So I've read many of the classical Russian sorts of texts, whether it be like uh, Medvedev's multi-year development of weightlifting or uh, Verko Shansky's, um, you know, co his coach's guide uh, is, is one of the most holistic reads that you could ever get your hands on. And, um, you know, all of those Russian texts featured statements about like the perfection of the movement for the sporting action as being like the first thing that needs to be done and um and reducing any limitations to that is really the objective of the coach early on when, when developing a, an athlete and you know i believed in that very much i i had a background in martial arts and i felt as though there was a tremendous amount of work in that area of, of sports where you really focus on the technique I, I also had a long history in baseball and focusing on the swing and making sure the mechanics of that are, are sound or is an enormous part of that sport uh, so I feel like I was well prepared to really go into examining movement and, um, and, you know, I really spent probably the, you know, the book itself was a three year venture and, and, uh, in terms of putting it together and, and really like getting more and more into the works of Bill Hartman, I think directed, uh, a lot of the specifics as much as possible, but it's, it's a culmination of, you know, really decades of work that went into the creation of this thing and, and also just frustration over previous books that had gone into the realm of movement and feeling as though they were extremely inadequate that had been out in the field and that it was about time, you know, in some ways it was almost like it's either a physical therapist who doesn't really train in a way that would like really push the, the, the adaptive limits in some way, shape or form or just someone that really doesn't understand uh, what's happening under the hood of, of actual human movement. Regardless, I just felt like it was really time for a book that explained uh, movement and what actually drives human movement, as well as how does this apply 
in trainable situations uh, to, to come out. And, and like I said, it was a three-year process to create this thing. But, you know, it's exciting to me now that it's out there and that people are starting to read it and get exposed to some of these thoughts because I don't think that similar thoughts exist in any other product, quite honestly. Uh, you know, there's a whole group of, of people such as myself that are probably influenced by, by either PRI or Bill Hartman that, that have similar thoughts. But a lot of the things in this book are uniquely my own as well. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that it's not just the people that have worked directly under me uh, or my previous students that now have access to these ideas. I think that's, uh, that's super interesting. Um, and you wouldn't have written it if there were, if every movement was perfect, right? So what do you think are the big issues with movement quality, which you see on a maybe daily, weekly or monthly basis? Well, I, I, I just think that, you know, I, I look like some people move really well and other people move like just absolute dog shit. And, you know, people for the most part don't know why. Why does this person move well and why does that person not move well? And then we just sort of like have these, these sort of like cookie cutter fixes that we think are going to work. And just because it worked with one person doesn't mean it's going to work with somebody else. Like, oh, they're squatting and their knees are caving in. Just throw a band around their knees. That'll work every time. No, it won't because you don't know anything about this person or why that's happening. And, uh, just generally speaking, what I tried to do here is I tried to give exact specificity as to what's going on at the level of skeletal shape and then uh what's what's happening at the level of the muscles and how to go about fixing this stuff and you know like i said it's it's either uh the person's picking the fly shit out of the pepper and focusing on these tiny little factors that probably don't have a tremendous amount of magnitude in terms of change or they just are, you know, I don't know. It's like there's some sort of a squat university fix of everybody just needs more dorsiflexion. And it's like, no, why would that be the case? Like, the, you have to examine the entire picture in the skeleton. And, uh, you know, it, like there's a lot of schools of thought that I just think are misguided or just don't have enough power. You know, it's like you get the fascia people and they're just like, hey, we're going to unwind you and everything's going to be on the sling line. And it's like that probably doesn't matter nearly as much as they think it does. Uh, you know, you'd have whatever other group of like, hey, it's all dorsiflexion if you can't squat well uh, for depth. And it's like, eh, that's probably, again, like a, a misguided thing. And I think that it, at the very least, uh, I tried to give a perspective on on the skeleton and the shape of the skeleton and how much of an impact that really drives into this thing but you know you got to understand that this is a book that's over 185,000 words and to try to give an answer to the question that you've given me is rather impossible in terms of i would just say you know there's like uh the the old saying of keep it simple stupid but when it's a con a question regarding like hey what's what's up with human movement you know how come people aren't doing it very well it's kind of like well, human movement is a expression of biology being demonstrated in vivo in live time right now. Like it's such a complex thing of multiple systems interacting together on a dynamic skeleton that has extreme shape associated with it. And it's like, well, like what, what kind of movement, what sort of person what direction are they going? And all of those things are questions. And, and that's what took me so long to get to the, the answer in, in, a, in a book like this. 
I think uh, you make a very good point with the question. <laughs> Firstly, it's a very general question which uh, requires a general answer. So with that, let's hit a case study. Let's use some real world examples. And can you talk us through how you've worked with uh, a client or an athlete before so that you could improve their movement quality? That could be in, in lifts, that could be in sporting movements. Just talk us through your process when you would do that uh, with, uh, with a practical example. Sure. So, you know, generally speaking, when it comes to people that I'm going to work with that have a movement limitation and it's, it's, here's how, here's how I go about my approach. The first person comes to me, whether it be an, I can think of a baseball player that came to me and, uh, you know, his coaches were saying that he was lacking the ability to get into the follow through of his swing to the degree that he was, he should be able to. And it's like, okay, well, they, they're trying to do baseball drills to get them into that position, but it's not working uh, as well as they would hope it would. And so what's going on? So I put the guy on the table and I, I measure his arms and his legs. And I do measurements for flexion, extension, uh, horizontal abduction, horizontal adduction, internal rotation, external rotation, uh, you know, for the arms. And then for the legs, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, IR, and ER. So I take a look at those things, and I compare them to human norms from a kinesiology textbook. Then what I do is I go on and I look at the infrasternal angle of the ribs, and the infrasternal angle of the ribs gives me an idea about, about the archetype of this person's skeleton. And it's either a wide angle or a narrow angle. And if it's narrow, it's telling me that this person overall has a skeleton that's biased towards inhalation and expansion. And if it's wide, it tells me that the person has a bias towards exhalation and compression. Okay, so that puts all of the measurements that I took into context. Because someone that is inhalation and expansion biased is going to be someone that has, they should have the ability to get into ER flexion and, uh, and abduction. Okay. Now, if they can't get into those positions, now I start looking at them a little funny, like, why can't you do what you should be able to do? You must have distal compensations at this point in time. So now I, I have a better, I can actually see what's going on with this person to a better degree. Conversely, if it's somebody that's going to be compressed and has a wide infrasternal angle, they should have access to extension, internal rotation, and adduction. If they don't, if all of a sudden I start to look at their humerus and I see that it, it lacks IR, I'm like, okay, well, this person is compensated in somewhere. Or if they have a tremendous amount of ER, I'm like, how'd you get that? That doesn't really make sense. You must have created some kind of compensation at either the femur or the humerus to be able to get there. Uh, that's interesting. But I still treat them initially as if they're narrow or they're wide. So I put them into a position. And that's targeted for either a narrow person or a wide person. And I breathe them in a way that's specific for a narrow person or a wide person. And then I reevaluate them on the table. And I say to myself, did I change their table test measurements and, and move them back towards human norms since they were deficient of human norms? And did I change their infrasternal angle? And oftentimes I do change their infrasternal angle and I do change their, their uh, appendicular skeleton back towards human norms. But sometimes I change their infrasternal angle and their appendicular skeleton didn't move back towards human norms. And now I say, okay, now I have to work with them at a distal level, uh, more specific to the, to their appendicular skeleton at the region that's lacking motion. So it's kind of like 
And then from there, it's just on and on and on. And if I'm working with someone that's like a professional athlete or somebody like that, or, you know, like, well, oftentimes I don't, just because they're a professional athlete doesn't mean I go any more in depth in terms of measurements, but some people need more specific measurements more distally. So I might start looking at like, you know, tibial ER, IR, radial ER, IR, those more distal measurements, neck measurements in terms of, uh, you know, rotation and lateral flexion and things like that uh, might start to measure things that would distinguish in terms of like uh, upper cervical, lower cervical, thoracic rotation, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, I, I just stick with arms and legs and infrasternal angle. I classify people into two archetypes. And oftentimes if someone is, is limited or has pain syndromes or extreme inability to get into positions, they'll be pretty far towards one of those archetypes of being compressed and wide or expanded and narrow. Uh, and when I see that, I have specific routes that I go down to be able to deal with those particular uh, circumstances. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market, developed by the team at Gymware. Flex is the only laser-based training system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. I think that's, that's super interesting with the uh, with the rib position, rib angles. Uh, could you give us a little bit of uh, of background physiology as to why that's important? Maybe just a, a minute or two to to dig into that. Sure. So you know, I would say that in general, people are aware of the fact that when they breathe, uh, there's certain motions that take place at their rib cage. You know, it's like uh, that's taught in basic anatomy and physiology 101. That on the inhale, your your sternum. And your sternal ribs are going to go through what's called a pump handle motion. Inhalation is pump handle up. Exhalation is pump handle down. And then you have your lower ribs, your, you know, sometimes floating ribs or infrasternal ribs. And those are going to go through bucket handle up and bucket handle down motion, bucket handle up on the inhale and bucket handle down on the exhale. And, um, you know, but there's a lot more total skeletal motion that takes place that's stereotypical for the respiratory cycle rather than just uh, infrasternal and sternal ribs. You know, when you get into uh, osteopathic literature, they basically break down the joint or the bone actions of every single bone in the body as it pertains to the respiratory cycle and the stereotypical ways in which the bones will move during the inhale and the bones will move during the exhale. And what you find is that the classification is generally going to be that, um, and, and what's interesting is if I go into, uh, let's say I just look at pump handle up and pump handle down at the sternum, you know, pump handle down is going to move your ribs at your, that attach to your sternum into external rotation. Uh, or I'm sorry, pump handle down is internal rotation of those ribs and pump handle up is external rotation of those ribs. Pump handle up is inhalation, pump handle down is exhalation. And, you know, when you start to look outward from there and examine all the other bones in the body, it's easier to examine the pelvis. You know, the pelvis uh, and the thorax are fairly similar to each other. They're analogous in terms of their movements and their structures and things like that. Kind of like you could say that the pubis is like the sternum of the pelvis. 
you could say that the sacrum is like the spine, the spine of the pelvis, and you could say that the uh, innominate bones are the um, scapula of the pelvis. You know, when you're breathing and you're inhaling, your scapula go through a stereotypical movement. When you're breathing and inhaling, your innominate bones go through the same stereotypical movement. Your pubis goes through the same cycle as the sternum. Uh, so all of those things are analogous to each other in terms of the respiratory motions that will take place at those two different regions. But you'll also see that the appendicular skeleton has stereotypical movements as well. And when people don't believe this, I'm like, well, if you really don't believe it, you feel like you really need like a journal article on this because there's no journal articles on this. It's more just osteopathic uh, textbook kinds of things that you'll get this from. But I'm like, hey, just watch people get tired and out of breath. And you'll see their entire skeleton move when they breathe. And you'll see the ways in which the common joint actions occur. Uh, and if you pay attention, you'll see everything that you really, that I'm talking about here. But you'll see that there's an easier common pattern to be able to distinguish. And it makes it very simple. And that inhalation is associated with, uh, like I was mentioning, pump handle up at the sternum, which is external rotation of the ribs. But it's all external rotation-based movements with inhalation. And flexion and abduction correspond with external rotation. And exhalation is the exact opposite, where it's going to be internal rotation. And extension and adduction will flow along with that particular movement. So you get a glimpse into the stereotypical strategies that the skeleton is utilizing to exist on this planet in a gravitational field and in the management of internal pressures with just trying to be a biological life form that's, you know, trying to accomplish the things that we do during our lifetime, and whether or not you're biasing your strategies of existence, survival, reproduction, and acquisition of calories towards one that would favor an expansion strategy that's associated with inhalation, or one that's a compression strategy that's associated with exhalation. And to play off of that, if you do have one of those uh, two examples, let's say you have uh, someone who's biased towards an inhalation-based uh, movement, what do you then do in terms of uh, practical advice to ensure that they get back to what you would then uh, call a, a norm or optimal for that person? How do you then work with them as an individual? Sure. So I would position them. So I usually use what I would call core exercises to be able to do that. And when I define a core exercise, I say that it's, the premise of it is to work on the positioning of the axial skeleton and to feature control of the body in space during the time that you're doing the exercise versus fitness exercises, which I would say are based on mechanical output and developing mostly like physiology that's measurable. Uh, you know, so I, I use core exercises to try to reposition the skeleton and try to give people access to lost motion. And when it comes to an inhalation-biased individual, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to put their joints into exhale-based positions, and I'm going to have them try to hold those exhale-based positions, and I'm going to have them try to breathe in a very specific way, and the way that I would have them breathe is I'm going to have them feature an open-mouth, relaxed posture uh, with their, you know, just their, their, their face, Okay. I want them to exhale with zero pressure. Uh, you know, so it's kind of like sighing or fogging a, a glass with, or fogging a mirror with your breath. Now, the reason that I'm doing this and like people might be like, okay, well, what's the, what's the reason behind this? And I'm, I'm trying to be able to answer this in a timely fashion 
so that it just doesn't take all day. Again, like there's, there's just a lot that goes into this thought process. But essentially, when I, when I talk about what creates an infrasternal angle, uh, you know, your, your lower ribs, they'll move with inhalation. They, they bucket handle down. They come closer together with the exhalation and they bucket handle up and they move farther apart with the inhalation. And when I talk about how you evaluate a skeleton and determine whether or not it's expanded or compressed, the way that what, like what's really happening at the infrasternal rib situation is that that's the first compensation of the system. Okay. So if like, why are you breathing like in, in gas exchange? Yes. All that sort of stuff. But from a mechanical and a movement perspective, you're breathing to, to help the movement process. Like you're utilizing breath to move. Uh, it's just another piece of a larger movement strategy puzzle that's called expanding. Like it's, it's, you've only got two ways in which you can move from a really big picture standpoint. You have expansion and you have compression. Uh, other animals are easier to see this in, such as worms. Worms can expand or they can compress. We're not that different. We just have, uh, more, uh, skeletal pieces and that gives us more constraints and it creates more specific joint actions and things like that. But underlying that, there's one simple rule that movement is driven through either expansion or compression. We can see it with the older parts of us, such as our heart, where the heart expands during diastole and compresses during systole. And it does that to accomplish a very specific task, which is to pump blood through the body. Uh, and every other movement that you do as an organism is, is, the point of it is to accomplish a very specific task. There's millions and millions of tasks that you have to accomplish just to be able to survive and acquire calories and reproduce and exist and all that kind of stuff. So everything about you from a biological or an anatomical perspective is just simply a solution that evolution came up with to allow you to be able to cope with all the demands that are put on you. And when it comes to, you know, the shape of your skeleton, the shape of your skeleton is a great evolution uh, solution to the complexity of existing in this universe on this planet. And when I think about like the, the orientation of a skeleton during the breath cycle, uh, you know, it's kind of like you have to compress your skeleton to be able to push air out of your system. You know, it, it just, it has to happen. Like if I'm going to, if I have a balloon that's filled with water and the end is not tied in a knot, like I'm, I'm going to have to squeeze the balloon somewhere to be able to push water out of it. And if I was going to have the balloon accept water back into it, I'd have to have the balloon stretch and open up. It's really the same kind of a thing. It's just that, you know, when you think about walking or something like that, there's just more pieces to it. But you're still, your system is still expanding and compressing somewhere to be able to accomplish that task. Now, when it comes to this situation that we're specifically talking about here, um, you know, I like at a certain point, people get really bad at expanding or compressing at specific parts of their skeleton. And then there's easier parts of your skeleton that you can expand or compress at. This is almost like, you know, an old school kind of strength and conditioning or physical therapy concept, like relative flexibility. It's the same thing, you know, like some areas are easier to compress or easier to expand. And probably the most malleable, easiest place to move in your body is your infrasternal ribs. You know, it's just, they're, they, they just, they have less resistance to them than other parts. So if you're struggling to, like, if you're breathing and you're struggling to expand, uh, certain, 
zones of your lungs that have you know more uh, hardened ribs outside of them, you can always overcompensate at the easiest place, which is the infrasternal ribs. So if you're struggling to get air out of your system, which is what an expanded person is, uh, and particularly somebody that has a narrow infrasternal angle, they just compensate by excessively squeezing air out through this lowest part of their rib cage. And then, so all the only place that they exhale from is this lower rib cage. And then the only place that they inhale, or, or and then they just inhale easily, it expands everywhere. Uh, but it's like they're excessively squeezing air out from that spot, from infrasternal ribs. And how do you actually accomplish that is the question. And the answer to that is that you just overly recruit the external oblique. The external oblique is a muscle of uh, accessory exhalation, and it's only kicked in in humans when you need a forceful exhalation. So, you know, if that's the case, what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to take that strategy away from you. And if I have you open your mouth very wide and exhale with no pressure and no force, such as a sigh, it's going to not allow you to use the external oblique. So if you don't use the external oblique, which is probably the, the main thing that you've been relying on to get air out, now you have to use everything else. You'll have to compress elsewhere through the system, hopefully everywhere through the system. And that's now going to be your new strategy of pushing air out. Now when you inhale, what should happen is it should bucket handle your infrasternal ribs up to a greater degree. And then on your next exhale, I still want it to be no force. So again, you'll have to compress elsewhere except for the outside of the infrasternal ribs to get that air out. And now hopefully over time through repetitions, you're going to create the situation where you're going to continue to bucket handle up those ribs and then you'll compress elsewhere through the body over and over again to accomplish this task of breathing, which you've only been using one strategy for previously, but now we're using a different pathway and a different methodology to accomplish. Absolutely excellent stuff. That was super interesting. So I'm a little bit conscious of your time. Um, yeah, no, could we it's, it's grab one more question? Uh, and that is, what is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the rest of the world can learn from? Well, you know, I well, my, my answer is probably different than, than maybe what people might expect. But, you know, people are like, hey, what podcast do you listen to? I'm like, I don't listen to podcasts. Who do you follow? And I'm like, I don't really follow anybody. You know, I just do my own thing. Like, I have my system. I have my method. And I just use it. And I go with it. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I don't really worry too much about what's going on elsewhere you know i i basically i'll use instagram or in social media to just give me fodder for things that i think are dumb and then i'll just my my whole social media is basically like hey i think this thing's dumb don't do this and it's just like this endless stream of things that are like misguided approaches and um so i don't i don't think that too many people really know what they're doing to tell you the truth so I don't really bother learning from them, you know, like, or, you know, like every, I have a, a group of people that I feel like are pretty smart. And sometimes they're like, Hey, you got to check out this person for this particular thing. I think they're really good. But, you know, I think that a lot of times people just, uh, if I'm going to seek out information from somebody, they better be the best in the world at that particular thing. You know, I don't want to learn from the person that's the second best or the third best or whatever else. Like I want the best person. And and I want them for that particular area because I probably don't know what about that area the way that that person does. And if I can pick up what they're talking about and focus on the things that they think are really important, 
then I'm probably going to make myself better in that area. Um, so, you know, when it comes to like actually changing human movement, I, I think Bill Hartman's the best in the world. And, you know, when it comes to organizing information and being able to put a complete model together from the perspective of using movement information as it pertains to training, I think I'm really good at that. I don't think I'm particularly good at actually figuring out a lot of these underlying mechanisms and things of that nature. But I think I'm really good at listening to smart people and organizing their stuff into a model uh, of everything that I think exists that's worthwhile to know about, which is essentially the book that I put together. But I see a lot of other people trying to take input from people that are like, you know, the 25th best person in an area. And it's like, well, now you just have this really watered down kind of runny version of this concept that's really like now become like a bastardization to the point of deficiency of the original topic. Why would you want to do it that way? Why not just go straight to the horse's mouth from that perspective? And like, why are you, why do you care so much about the opinions and, uh, and input of people that are just irrelevant and like have no idea what they're talking about? There's very few people that I care about in terms of their opinion, uh, on, on what I'm doing. But the people that, that I do care about their opinion of, I value their opinion to the highest degree imaginable. And I just, I just see like a lack of differentiation amongst other people in terms of what matters or how much it matters. So I think that's something that people really need to work on in an era where it seems as though more and more we're being told socially that like, you know, everything is of equal value and equal merit. And it's like, no, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Some things are of highest quality. Some things suck, and most things are in the middle. I think that's a fantastic way to end things. So, Pat, massive thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you got it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time as well. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Pat for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our free-to-download Performance Digest issue, the Performance Digest is our monthly e-magazine, which comprises 19 carefully selected sports science articles, which have been released in the last month. Those articles are reviewed by our crack team of experts from around the world, who give you all the practical advice that you need to implement these studies in your practice. So if you want to save loads of time compared to searching through PubMed or Google Scholar for all of the latest sports science research articles, be sure to give that on a free download using the link in the show notes. And before you leave, be sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever podcast sender you're listening to. That allows us to keep bringing the highest quality guests that we can find and also means that you won't miss next week's fantastic episode. So in just a few seconds time, hit that subscribe button and I will look forward to speaking to you next week. So that's it. Once again, I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.